welcome back to the Spartan History Podcast. This is episode 8, Immortal Twins. That's right, episode 8. I finally decided to do away with my weird attempt at counting episodes. The final straw was episode 3 of Helen, part 3, which was in fact the 7th podcast released. It was killing my soul. I apologise for putting you all through that, and rest assured, I have seen the light. Studying for this episode began a couple of months ago. After I decided to do a trilogy on their famous sister Helen, Castor and Polyjuices came into my area of focus. I'd known their story in broad strokes and outline for years, and they always seemed ephemeral figures. Floating in and out of different legends and unlikely and often conflicted timelines, with lives more like punctuation points within a greater narrative. Well, looks like I was right. Trying to pin the pair down and build a coherent chronology was like chasing smoke. I saw a ball of rubber bands all tangled up once. That's how my mind felt after piecing together the many and varied legends. I've had to cast a fairly wide net for my source material this time, and unlike previously, can't rely almost explicitly on Homer. He mentions Castor and Polyjuices, but only to tell the reader that they are dead in his Iliad. They pop up once more in the Odyssey too, though Homer corrects himself slightly here by telling us that they are only kind of dead now. Not a great help from Uncle H. Hesiod is a little more helpful in that we learn of the twins' actions during their sister's wedding to Menelaus. Put that together with the information gleaned from the Christomathy, and we have some interesting bookends to their lives. To fill in the spaces between, I've used information from a broad bibliography of works spanning over a millennium of ancient scholarship. The works of Ovid, Pindar, Pausanias, Apollodorus, to name just a few. Let's start with immortality. Like most things in ancient Greek culture, it's an extremely complex and nuanced concept. More metaphysical than purely physical, the attainment of immortality generally involved the death of one's corporal form and subsequent elevation of spirit to Mount Olympus. In Hesiod's Age of Heroes, which corresponds with the Bronze Age, most of the notable characters who we know of had divine parentage in some form. That is, had been fathered or mothered by at least one of the so-called immortal beings dwelling on Mount Olympus. Even the mightiest were at the mercy of physical death, and I'm looking at you, Mr. Heracles, and you, Mr. Achilles. Heracles or Hercules was the son of Zeus, and his mother was the granddaughter of Perseus, which made for an interesting parentage. Whilst extremely hard to kill, Heracles nonetheless still perished when he made the decision to commit suicide. Having been mistakenly poisoned by his wife, the pain was so great that he built his own funeral pyre and leapt upon it. Homer has Odysseus meeting Heracles in Hades during Book 11 of the Odyssey. We are told that this is just a ghost of the apparition, a spirit of the spirit, if you will, as Heracles' real ghost is on Mount Olympus. As for mighty Achilles, we've seen his fate in full in the previous episodes on Helen. His mother was an immortal sea-nymph, goddess-use-loving type thing, and even his father had some divinity in his background. None of that stopped that mongrel Paris from laying the son of Peleus low with bow and arrow. Like Heracles, Odysseus meets Achilles in Hades, where it seems his glory-loving attitude has faded somewhat. He bemoans to the complicated man, I would rather be the poorest servant of a landless peasant above the ground than be king of kings over the dead. In the epics, it seems as if the gods themselves are vulnerable to physical harm, as when Aphrodite charges onto the Trojan plain to protect her son, Aeneas. In Book 5 of the Iliad, she receives an injury from the Greek hero Diomedes' spear, and is forced to retreat, injured, to Mount Olympus. There she is upbraided by Zeus for putting herself in danger, and the implication is that she could have died. 
So there we have three good examples of the ambiguity of immortality. One hero dies and is risen to immortality. Another hero dies and is consigned to eternity in Hades, and finally a goddess has a brush with death on the mortal plane. It seems that immortality was the territory of the gods, a gift they could bestow upon worthies, but not necessarily pass on to offspring. It was also a gift that through carelessness could be lost. Understanding the fundamentals to the ancient Greek ideas of immortality will be helpful in understanding the birth and eventual fate of this episode's subjects. Now in the last series of episodes, I let slide the story of the boys being born with Helen and Clytemnestra from an egg, making at the time some vague allusions to some sort of weird parentage. The apparent truth is slightly more complicated than that, and a series on Helen really wasn't the place to get into the vagaries surrounding her brother's births. To tease out the truth from the wealth of conflicted sources available, I believe you have to solve two problems. The first is that even their titles throughout historical texts lead to a fair amount of confusion due to the literal translation of the words themselves. The Dioscuri and the Tindaridae are the two most popular collectors for the twin brothers used. The first translated means the sons of Zeus, and the second the sons of Tindarius. A natural conflict in language immediately arises when you see those two terms used sometimes in the same text. The second problem to deal with is the issue of when and what form their birth took. For Castor and Polyduces, thoughts are divided into one of three differing camps. The first is that they were the sons of Leda and Tyndarius. This is first mentioned in the Odyssey when Homer says in Book 11, Leda bore Tyndarius two sons. The second, that they are the sons of Zeus and Leda. This comes out first in the Hesiodic Catalogue of Women, where the pair are repeatedly referred to as the sons of Zeus. And finally, the third most popular viewpoint is the one that has a split patrimony for the twins, with Zeus fathering Polyduces and Tyndarius fathering Castor. This is the one that gets wrapped up as a birth corresponding with Helen and Clytemnestra, involving either one or two eggs. It first gets a mention in the poetry of Pindar, who wrote in the 5th century BCE. It's the first camp that I reside in, not only because the earliest of sources suggest they are the Tyndaridae and mortal, but a birth contemporary with Helen just doesn't fit the chronology. Castor and Polyduces, for my mind, were the twin offspring of Tyndarius and Leda alone. As to their name meanings, Castor is the Greek word for beaver, though it more likely comes from the word kakasto, which means to shine or excel. For Polyduces, his name translates as very sweet. I've read this could relate to the affection the two brothers had for one another, but haven't been able to find anything concrete about the meaning behind the translation. More popularly known as Pollux in Latin, this is most likely due to the constraints of the language and the transmission of the brother's story to Rome via the Etruscans. Now to quote the great Cat Stevens, the twins came to the world in the usual way. They grew to manhood in what we can only assume was a typical upbringing for Mycenaean elites. Learning the arts of warfare, horsemanship and hunting, which were to serve them well in adulthood. Unfortunately, Apart from a lot of conjecture around their parentage, there is nothing in the sources to denote a single event from their birth to their manhood. In the first two recorded events of their story, we find the pair as participants in two of the great hero quests in the generation before the Trojan War. The Caledonian boar hunt and the quest for the Golden Fleece are these two events. I'll be telling the hunt story first, followed by the quest for the Golden Fleece, though the chronology is difficult to ascertain. There are conflicts in the critical sources for which event took place first, but I'll explain my reasoning for the order presented as we go through the tales. One thing that isn't conflicted seems to be the presence of Castor and Polyduces on both the hunt and the quest. For each story, there are no fewer than three key sources, 
and although there is some variance over the composition of the heroic bands, the lists always include the Dioscuri. One thing I'd like to point out before we begin is the parallels between the Iliad and the Odyssey, and the boar hunt and the Argonaut story. The Iliad and the Hunt of Caledon are both examples of history under the microscope. The Iliad takes place on a thin stretch of land under the walls of Troy, and over only a few days. So too does the boar story take place on what seems to be the surrounding countryside of Caledon, and only over at best 10 days or so. Also, the main heroes of the stories play both the protagonist and the antagonist of the epics. The interconnections between the Odyssey and the quest for the Golden Fleece are myriad in number. For a start, they both expand the realm of the Greek world and span even the borders of imagination. Many of the places the heroes visit, that's Jason and Odysseus respectively, are the same with similar characters they both run into. Prime examples of this is the island of the Phaeacians and the goddess Circe. Interestingly, the primary source for the Argonauts was writing several hundred years after Homer, but for a story that would take place before the Odyssey. This makes Jason's quest seem somewhat modern in relation to Homer's tale, even though it technically predates it. The story of the hunt was ancient, and one very well known by the epic composers of Homer's time. There's no narrative that has come down to us complete from that archaic age, nor is the one we do have concise in its detail. Rising above the varied accounts are the numerous artistic and architectural depictions of the hunt present in the archaeological record. The first literary account of the events at Caledon is courtesy of the Iliad. In Book 9, things are faring poorly for the Archaeans. The anger Achilles felt at being wronged by the Greek king had led him to brood within his tent and not take the field of battle. Without their greatest hero, the Archaeans have retreated to their beachhead and built a wall around their ships. In a brilliant flip of circumstance, those who sailed so far to besiege the Trojans were now themselves besieged. Attempting to bring the son of Peleus back into the fight, Agamemnon instructs a group of heroes to head to the tent of Achilles to bribe, beg, and lobby for his return. The delegation is composed of Odysseus, Ajax, and Phoenix. All three try in their own way to convince Achilles that his anger is misplaced, that Agamemnon is contrite, and that his glory is to be found on the battlefield and not in the tent. Homer has Phoenix, who participated in the hunt and was an old companion of Achilles' father, tell the story of the Caledonian boar. He uses the tale as a moralistic prop to show the son of Peleus that the path of anger is the one fraught with disaster. All three of the delegates fail in their mission and as we know it will take the death of Patroclus to rejoin the war. This first account is no mere sideshow in the Iliad, and Homer devotes over 100 lines of his epic to its telling. Although it carries many of the details of the later, more popular versions, it appears to have some glaring omissions. I believe this was done on purpose by the father of epic, and not that the misdetails were later embellishments of the tale, though some of them may have been. After all, Homer was interested in forwarding his own story of Troy, and not another epic composer's popular legend. We'll run through the hunt in brief now, and Castor and Polydeuces' part in it. The king of Caledon, a region just to the north of the Corinthian Gulf, was called Oeneus. At a yearly festival to celebrate the gods, he made the fateful mistake of forgetting to honour the goddess Artemis. To reward his unmindfulness, the goddess released to ravage the countryside a monstrous boar, the like of which had never been seen before. I mean, don't get me wrong, there were other nasty pigs running around the countryside in those days. Heracles dispatched one in his twelve labours, and Theseus did the same, though in the spirit of gender equality, his was a sow. The people of Caledon abandoned the countryside to this menacing beast and hid behind the walls of the city. The king's eldest son, Meliga, assembled a party of heroes from all over Greece and made designs to hunt the monster down. 
The prize would be the creature's hide and tusks, as in those days glory and renown was all the reward required. Meleager was the nephew of the Spartan queen Leda, as his mother, Queen Althea, was her sister. This made him cousin to the children of House Tyndarius. Whether it was due to familial bonds, the love of a good pig hunt, or even both, Castor and Polyduces travelled to Caledon to join the quest. Many other heroes of the age came to the region to assist King Oeneus and his people. From the land of Messenia, which bordered that of Laconia, the princes Idas and his brother Lynceus travelled. King Theseus of Athens was there too, as was his friend Pirithius, the king of the Lapiths. Jason, who would later sail for the Golden Fleece, arrived to participate. Several fathers of future Trojan heroes proved their worth a generation before their sons would do the same on the fields of Troy. Laertes, Peleus, and Telamon, the fathers of Odysseus, Achilles, and Ajax respectively, were three of them. Meliga's uncles, Plexippus and Toxius, weren't about to let their nephew reap all the glory and join too. Besides these champions of Greece, there were many others. In some accounts, up to 40 people came together for the hunt. The last person to arrive was the fierce huntress Atalanta, who had been abandoned at birth and was suckled by a she-bear on the forested slopes of Mount Lysaeus. Most of the men demanded that she be denied the right to participate in the chase. Maliga took one look at her and fell head over heels in love, despite already being married. Due to immediate concerns, he buried his feelings and led out the hunting party into the wilderness. The clutter of hooves provided the drumbeat, and the cries and yips of the hunting hounds, the rhythm to this orchestra of might that rode away from the beleaguered city of Caledon. The Roman poet Ovid lays out for his readers the topography of the area where this quest would have its climax. Quoting from his Metamorphosis, The scene is a dense and primeval forest, untouched by the axe. It starts on a level plateau, and looks out over the sloping country below. When the hunters arrived, some spread their nets, another group slipped their hounds from the leash, while others followed the well-marked spore, all keen to unearth their dangerous quarry. It's an extremely tense scene and easy enough to picture the heroes spreading out across a glade that had gone silent in anticipation of what was to follow. Ovid's Metamorphosis and the Bibliotheca offer the most gripping accounts of how the hunt played out. They give you a real sense of the fear and panic these legendary heroes felt as they failed to bring down the boar and one by one are ripped apart by its tusks and hooves. We even see a little friendly fire as the spear of Peleus misses its mark only to kill another of the hunters. I wonder if he told a young Achilles that particular war story around the fire in the home of Pythia. Another hunter, this one a cousin of Castor and Polyduces, also from Sparta, has his leg tendons cut by the razor-sharp tusks, and this occurred as he was running in fright away from the scene. In Ovid's account, all seems lost for a brief moment until the Dioscuri ride in to confront the boar. Quoting from the Metamorphoses, he says of the twins, Now Castor and Polyduces, the heavenly twins before they were stars, came forward, both magnificent sights, both riding horses whiter than the gleaming snow, both proudly brandishing spears which quivered within their grasp as the metal tips flashed in the sunlight. Those spears would surely have wounded the boar, but the bristly creature had slunk off into the thickets where horses and spears could not reach him. I get the impression from Offord here that the impressiveness of the Spartans' charge, the defiance in their approach, caused the boar a moment of caution. Despite its successes so far, in this instance discretion would be the better part of valour. An important thing to note in the attack of the twins, they are the only two hunters who ride upon horses. The others all seem to be unmounted in their hunt. By Ovid's time, Castor and Polyduces were worshipped as warriors of the horse in Rome and other Mediterranean regions. 
It would prove to be a momentary reprieve for the beast as the huntress Atalanta scored first blood with a hit from her bow. After this, Maliga finished off the wounded creature with a couple of thrusts from his spear, and the hunt ends. As the remainder of the group butcher the carcass, they award the tusks and hide to Maliga. At this stage, his love for Atalanta had only grown fiercer, watching her fearlessly confront the boar. He quite rightly demands that she be awarded the spoils as it was her arrow that drew first blood. The men of the group are incensed by this and feel emasculated even further. Not only had a woman been the first to wound the creature, but now she would walk away with the trophies. Maliga's uncles would have none of it, and if their nephew wouldn't receive the spoils, then they would take them instead. The scene that unfolded next was the stuff of tragedy. Enraged by his uncle's usurpation of what he saw as rightfully Atalantis, Maliga, in a fit of passion and rage, killed both his mother's brothers in cold blood. The victorious hunting party headed back to Caledon, where word travelled fast of their success. The townsfolk rejoiced, but Queen Althea experienced a flux of differing emotions. Joy, sorrow, and rage. Joy, when word had reached her of her son's success in killing the Caledonian boar. Then sorrow, when she saw her brother's bodies being carried back within the city upon the backs of the other hunters. Finally, rage when she found out who had been responsible for their deaths. Many years ago, at the birth of Maliga, the three fates had appeared and cast a log into the fire, telling the queen that the lifespan of the child would be measured by how long the log took to burn. The desperate mother saved the log from the flames and buried it deep in a cellar. Seeing her brothers dead by her son's hand, the love of a sister outweighed that of a mother. Althea dug up this long-buried piece of timber and cast it onto the flames, consigning it and her son to ash. She reasoned that why should her husband enjoy the victory of her son when her father had to bury his. Maliga knew none of this, but when the log caught fire, so too did he, and they both passed from this world in flames. There are many early myths involving similar quests and hunts for beasts that have apparently overrun the countryside. The fauna in Greece, and for that matter Europe in general, was far more diverse than it is at present. Lions, wolves, and bears made up some of the animals that presented the unwary traveller concerns for life and limb. These tales come down from a time when an overgrown and aggressive pig really would have been something to fear. With no modern firearms to assist, you can imagine a group of brave people banding together to bring it down and restore safety. News spread fast, and stories got bigger and better with the telling. The person who walked away with the hide and tusks of such a kill was a hero. Castor and Polyjuices, having completed the quest, returned home to Sparta having made their first impression upon the world of myth. It would not be long before the call to adventure has them back on the road again. About 40 kilometres east of Larissa, on the eastern edge of Thessaly, lies the modern town of Iolcus. A place of about 2,000 inhabitants today, it was nonetheless an important Mycenaean city in the Bronze Age. It's also the starting point for the epic journey of Jason and his Argonauts. The story we know as the quest for the Golden Fleece had its roots, like the Caledonian boar, in preliterate history. Both Homer and Hesiod make references to the event in their own epic works, but as with the boar, the story is rather vague. Next, there are mentions of the quest in the works of Minermus and Pindar, who wrote poetry in the 7th and 5th centuries BCE, respectively. In their works, the story of Jason is beginning to take more shape, with the central details of the Argo and the Golden Fleece being described. However, the definitive story comes to us through Apollonius of Rhodes and his Argonautica. Written in the 3rd century BCE, it is the only epic of the Hellenistic period that survives complete. Apollonius was at one stage in his career the head of the Library of Alexandria. 
it would therefore be very safe to assume that he had access to any and all material relating to the subject of Jason and his quest. Homer's works have anachronisms, but most are subtle. Apollonius's work has more obvious ones, perhaps due to it being even less contemporary with the events. Of particular relevance is the portrayal of Castor and Polyduces as more than just heroes, impressing onto the time of epic a very 3rd century impression of the twins by referencing their cult worship. Others do too, with Diodorus of Sicily in his account of the Argonauts. He writes about the god Glaucus travelling for a time on the Argo. Spending his time predicting the future of the crew, when he comes to the twins he addresses them first as Tindarity, sons of Tindarius. He then proclaims that from this moment they are known as the Dioscuri, sons of Zeus, and that they should be provided for as gods on earth. By the time of Diodorus, writing in the 1st century BCE, Castor and Polyduces were worshipped across the Greek and Roman worlds. Now, even for a Greek legend, the quest for the Golden Fleece has a truly dizzying amount of backstory. To avoid turning this episode into an epic of its own, we'll just have to let a brief synopsis of the quest and a highlight reel of the Dioscurized activities suffice. Beware of the man wearing one sandal. This was the prophecy Polias, the king of Yolkus, received, and it spelt his doom. When he saw a young man approach years later wearing just one sandal, he was starting to get alarmed. When the youth approached and introduced himself as Polias's long-lost nephew, Jason, the king's spidey senses really started twitching. The fact that Polias had locked Jason's parents in a dungeon, usurped the family throne, and murdered the rest of the family only increased his sense that it was the eve of the prophecy's fulfilment. The king asked the newcomer, what should he do if he ever met the man who would be his downfall? To this, Jason replied, I'd send that person on a quest for the Golden Fleece. With so wily means that we can't really figure it out today, Polias sent Jason on his mission impossible. A ship with two masts, the like of which had never been seen, was constructed by Argus, and in his honour, named the Argo. A list of heroes not dissimilar to the boar hunt assembled in the Ocus. They probably all swapped numbers at Caledon, or at the very least, a city-state of origin. Notable additions were Orpheus and Heracles. The first, a famous musician, basically the David Bowie of ancient Greece for his transcendence. The second, needs no introduction and was taking a break from his labours by questing for the fleece, in case you were wondering what Heracles does during his holidays. Notable absences would be Theseus and Pirithus, who were in Hades, or Epirus. I'll get to that later. Setting sail for the proverbial never-never land, they encountered the rock, the hard place, and whatever else on their journey to the Colchis. On the eastern shores of the Black Sea, this is where the fleece lay, suspended in an oak tree, guarded by a never-sleeping, or blinking, dragon. One of the stops on the Argo's long trip, nearby modern-day Istanbul, was in the land of the Babrisians. King Amakos, the resident leader, welcomed the Argonauts to his shores by informing them with as much conceit as possible that if they wanted to leave alive, then one of their number must fight for that right. Fight him, that is, boxing style, and to the death, naturally. As two pairs of gauntlets were thrown down in the sand, the king stood there smirking, cracking his knuckles. Jason's men were enraged by the foul words of this stranger, who disregarded the laws of hospitality. None more so than Polyduces, who was known throughout the lands as the peerless boxer. Jumping down from the deck and standing before the gloves, Amikos indicated whichever pair he liked, not wanting to be accused of cheating. As you put them on, the king said, you will feel how skillful the hands that made them are. Soon, you will see how well the one who made them can use them to splatter the blood on your cheeks. Polyduces was only slightly frustrated, more amused as Castor came forward to help him put on the oxide gauntlets. The two brothers gave that, can you believe this guy looked to each other? 
as Polyducey stepped away and into the fight. He and Amikos exchanged many blows in the initial rounds, but the Spartan was happy to let his opponent stay on the offensive so strengths and weaknesses could be learned. As the two pugilists pulled apart, sucking in breath, everything fell silent as the continuous report of the blows ceased. In that silence, Polyducey understood not only that Amicus was tiring, but also where his weak spot was. As the king swung in with a wild haymaker, Polyducey slid aside and then inside the other's guard, striking with a thunderous right hook. Slamming into the skull of Amikos, it broke all of the bones in its path. As the king fell dead to the ground, his lifeblood poured out. The Argonauts cheered doubly loud, for not only had their champion won, but also they wouldn't have to listen to Amikos talk in boastful tones ever again. The king's guards had other ideas and immediately raised their weapons and charged the victorious boxer. They weren't quick enough, and Apollonius relates the following as the Argonauts rushed to Polyducey's defence. First, Castor struck upon the head a man as he rushed at him, and it was cleft in twain and fell on each side of his shoulders. And Polyducey's slew huge Idomeneus and Mimus. The one, with a sudden leap, he smote beneath the breast with his foot and threw him into the dust. And as the other drew near, he struck him with his right hand above the left eyebrow and tore away his eyelid, and the eyeball was left bare. Needless to say, Castor, Polyducey's, and the crew of the Argo sailed away resupplied and victorious whilst Babrisia's finest lay dead on the sand. Not far from Babrisia, the Argo stopped in the land of another king, this one named Lysus. Now, the two kings couldn't be more of polar opposites if they tried. Where Lysus was convivial, Hamikos was conniving. Where one was benevolent, the other malevolent. To top it all off, Lysus even hated Amikos and his proclivities, namely the whole boxing people's brains in before properly introducing oneself. Imagine his delight at Polyducius' news that Amikos had his head punched in by yours truly. Well, you don't have to imagine, I'll tell you. He was so indebted that he built a temple on a high cliff so that sailors far and wide could see it and dedicated it to the Dioscuri. By the time of the Argonautica, Apollonius's world was one that worshipped the twins as protectors of sailors and ships, among many other things. This holy lighthouse, possibly an anachronism, designates the pair's importance to the ancient maritime world. The phenomenon known as St. Elmo's Fire was a well-known event to sailors of the ancient Mediterranean. Its appearance was thought to signify the twins' protection and was regarded as an exceptionally good omen, therefore. These are the only two events of significance for our Laconian princes within the greatest story of the Argonautica. Castor and Polyducis, like most of the other 50-odd Argonauts, are only bit players against the great storyline of Jason's quest. To briefly wrap up, though, from there it was business as usual. Obstacles, death, rescues, prophecies, smelly harpies, Pretty standard stuff until the Argo docked in Colchis. Presenting himself before King Aetes, Jason told of his reasons for coming so far and risking so much, reminding him that he had, obscure as it may be, a claim to the Golden Fleece through a family connection. Aetes surely thought, ooh, the nerve of this traveller, and with only wearing one sandal too. Well, by now Jason may have found another sandal, but I've never read that in the sources. Anyway, the nerve. I should kill him. His crew and burn that cursed ship to the waterline. But reason prevailed. I mean the witnesses, and all the vengeance killings from the Argonauts' families. Even this far east, Aetes knew that every man before him was related to gods and heroes. The king himself was the son of Helios. So the son of the sun sent Jason on Mission Impossible too, and if he could complete it, the fleece was his. With the help of Aetes' daughter, Medea, who was struck by a love arrow from Eros, Jason completes the mission. Not trusting to the king's word, 
he steals off into the night having obtained the girl and the fleece. The fugitives are hunted far and wide by the king's pursuing forces. They end up travelling up the Danube River from the Black Sea. Somehow getting from that watercourse, they follow the Rhine out to the west coast of Italy, and via Sicily, Libya and Crete, make their way home. Back in Iolcus, Pelias can't believe his eyes at the return of his nephew. Not only does he refuse to abdicate, he informs Jason that because he didn't expect him to return, he'd killed his parents. Having never met Medea before, you could forgive the evil uncle for thinking he could get away with such abhorrent treatment of family. She contrived for his own daughters to cut him up and throw him in a boiling cookpot in the belief that he would be reborn, renewed. Turns out he was, like the throne of Iolcus, just poached instead. You'd think it was all a happy ending for the new couple, but it's Greek history and that never happens. Driven from his native land due to the murder, Medea and Jason settled in Corinth, where the you-know-what really hit the fan. That's a story for another time, though, as the twins had no doubt already left for home by this point and the next drama of their lives. In the name of transparency, before we move on, I'd like to mention my reasoning for placing the quest for the Golden Fleece after the Caledonian hunt. Apollonius reasons the absence of Theseus from the Argonauts is due to him having followed his friend Perithius to the underworld in pursuit of Persephone. In Plutarch's life of Theseus, this trip down under, to hell, not Australia, took place after his abduction of Helen. All sources agree of Theseus's participation on the Caledonian boar hunt. I doubt abducting their sister would have made Castor and Polyduces dispose kindly towards the Athenian king. It might have even been in Caledon that Theseus first heard of a daughter of Zeus born to Leda in Laconia, as a story told by her brothers. The biggest problem with my reasoning is that in Apollonius's Argonautica, Maliga is one of the Argonauts, which would be hard considering that he died at the end of the hunt. It's not completely implausible that the hero survived the hunt, though. In the earliest account, that of Homer's, his death is never mentioned in consequence. Either way, there is a strong case for each outcome. I've merely chosen to go this way as it fits the timeline a little better. Participating successfully in two of the great legends of Greek mythology would surely warrant a break. Perhaps a little fishing by the Eurotas River, or even a good old-fashioned Laconian boar hunt if the situation at Caledon hadn't sated that desire for the chase. It wasn't to be for the Dioscuri. Not by a long shot. It isn't clear when they heard the dire news of their sister's abduction. Did the Athenians let slip the gossip as the pair travelled home to Sparta? We'll credit them more intelligence than that. I believe it happened when they arrived home to the court of their father, Tyndareus. Rather than a hero's welcome, they walked into a scene of misery as only the disappearance of Helen could bring. This act, ostensibly an act of war between two neighbouring states, could only be addressed in similar fashion. No sooner had the twins arrived home, they took up the mantle of war leader and assembled what troops the Spartan armies had available. Marching north, they immediately invaded and ravaged the countryside of Attica, hoping to provoke Theseus and his own army out of Athens. Besieging the city of Athena, they demanded the repatriation of their sister immediately. The Athenians could not comply with their request, for not only did they not know where Helen was, they had no idea where Theseus was either. The king had gone rogue of late, and had made many enemies within and without his homeland. On the verge of storming the city, some men from the region of Decalia leaked to the Dioscuri, the location of Helen as being the fortress of Aphidna to the north of Athens. How the Decalians knew this vital piece of information isn't clear, but as the town lies between Athens and Aphidna, they perhaps witnessed Theseus's flight. Either way, empowered by the knowledge gained, the Spartan army mobilised and marched to where their princess was held. The Aphidnans, we're told, 
sallied forth into the plain at the approach of the Dioscurized forces, and a pitch battle was fought. The victorious Spartans then stormed the town and secured the prize in a rescued Helen. Almost a thousand years after this time, the Spartans and the Athenians would be at each other's throats again during the 27-year-long Peloponnesian War. For many of those years, Spartan armies pillaged the land surrounding Athens, but never the region of Decalia. So grateful were the men of Laconia to the help given to Castor and Polyducis in finding their sister. Along with the fortress, the twins also captured Aethra, the mother of Theseus, whom her son had placed as a guardian over Helen. It's hard to discern the relationship between the two, but tellingly she even accompanied the daughter of Zeus to Troy and served her there. This leads me to believe that Helen's captivity was a long one, and that a strong bond of trust and mutual affection developed between the two, Helen and Aethra. From Aphidna, the army of the Tindaridae marched south and camped outside of Athens once more, sending the citizenry into a panic. There was a man named Menesius, who was using his time wisely whilst Theseus was absent. He played the role of the demagogue, and used his organisational abilities to muster support for himself amongst the Athenians predisposed to revile their absent king. Even though still pro-Theseus, he swung to his side by pointing out the many injustices done to the people, and how the fair monarchy of Aegeus had been replaced by the tyranny of his son. The Spartan army at the gates only helped his cause as he convinced the Athenians that the Dioscurized hatred wasn't directed at them, but at Theseus, and this was precisely where their own anger should be directed. Placated somewhat, the citizens opened the gates and allowed the Spartan armies within the city proper. The collective fear of the people was misplaced, so gracious and just were the Spartans. They demanded nothing, save induction in the Eleusian mysteries, which like Heracles before them, the people granted. Plutarch in his Life of Theseus says, They obtained honours like those paid to the gods, and were addressed as Anarchis. This term is a parochial Athenian word for king or guardian, and imparts a sense of local adoration for Castor and Polyducis. Even down to the classical era, a temple to the Dioscuri called the Anikion, which stood in the Athenian Gora, gave credit to the love of the people of Athens still bore the twins. Considering the level of enmity between Spartan and Athenians at certain times, I find it amazing that the twins could be venerated in Athens in any way, shape or form. To repay his assistance, Menetius was installed as king of Athens and had Theseus deposed in absentia. That begins a fairly long history of Spartan armies attempting to install pro-Spartan governments on Athens. The new king turned out to be a reasonable choice and gained the people's loyalty. So much that when Theseus returned from Hades, or Epirus, the sources aren't clear. Actually, just quickly, it doesn't say a lot for Epirus if it's being confused with what is basically purgatory with no exit. I've spent some time in Preveza, which is in Epirus. It's on the Ionian Sea. It's lovely. Didn't seem like Hades at all. Anyway... When Theseus returned, he was forced into exile by his somewhat ungrateful former subjects. Menesius, secure on his throne, would go on to fight in the Trojan War where his skill in organising was noted by Homer. Like many of the other Achaean heroes in the plains of Troy, he was also a shooter for Helen's hand, and had sworn the oath of Tyndareus. It's here we find Castor and Polyducis performing the role of older brothers and vetting the would-be candidates. I say older brothers with confidence too and it should be apparent by now that the pair had led a full life up until this point. They had participated in both the hunt for the Caledonian boar and the gold fleece. Moreover, had led armies into Attica winning battles and taking Athens. All this was while their apparently born-at-the-same-time sister was an unwed youth in captivity. Impossible. And now she has been matured by life and experience. The other side of that is the Trojan War itself. Apart from Phoenix and Nestor, who were described as ancient, 
None of the heroes who quested with Castor and Polyjuices were at Troy. If Helen was the same age as the twins, she would have been considered ancient, or at the very least older than everyone else fighting. We can also see the gradual progression of generational shift in the lists of shooters compared with the heroes who travelled with the Dioscuri. The lists we have are fragmentary at best, but they show the next group of heroes emerging. In some instances, the sons of those older heroes would make their first appearance on the mythical scene here, like Ajax the Lesser. We know the story of Helen's wedding well from our past look at her life, but it seems the twins played an integral role in that process. In Hesiod's catalogue of women, although riddled with lacuna, we get a great sense for the shape of that role. They almost seem to have acted bodyguard security even for Helen, with both Castor and Polyjuices receiving numerous mentions as shooters arrive to participate in the wedding. They're there, inspecting the gifts being offered and communicating with the interested parties, perhaps playing proxy for the bride-to-be. Tellingly, there seems to have been two shooters from Argos whose actions caused the indignation of mankind and their methods of wooing. The catalogue isn't clear on the particulars on the event, but this passage finishes with the line, but there was no deceitful dealing in the sons of Tendarius. Either the Argive princes had attempted bribery or something worse, but the Dioscuri acted with honour when it came to their sister and shut down any scheme that would cause her harm. The closing of the wedding with the oath of Tyndarius would herald the closing phase of the pair's life. Neighbouring Laconia to the west lies the district of Messenia, a region that will feature large when we eventually get to the Iron Age phase of Sparta. King Afarius ruled there at the time, and two of his sons, Idas and Lintius, were well known to Castor and Polyjuices. In his younger years, Tyndarius had spent some time in exile at the court of Afarius. In Pausanias' account, they too were brothers. This is possibly before his wedding to Leda, but there is no reason the children of both men wouldn't have grown up knowing each other. They were, after all, cousins. Certainly both sets of brothers participated in the Caledonian hunt and the quest for the fleece. Whatever familial bonds the two sets of brothers shared would be shattered over the daughters of Lachippus, Hilaria and Phoebe. Idas and Lincius were betrothed to the pair, and the story goes that Castor and Polyduces were so charmed by the girl's beauty, they carried them off. It is referred to as a rape and abduction, but a careful examination of the evidence seemingly rehabilitates the Dioscuri. Not only was there no war fought for the girl's return, as was the case with Helen, Castor and Polyduces are recorded as having a son with their respective wives. Either way, it would be for sure that the seed of enmity had been planted between the two sets of brothers. Things were cordial enough that next we see all four on a cattle raiding mission into the neighbouring land of Arcadia. As they returned home with a herd of ill-gained cattle in tow, the sons of Afarius suggested a novel way of dividing the spoils. They would roast and quarter a calf. Whichever of the four men ate their portion first would get half of the cattle, whoever ate their second would get the other half. The Dioscuri agreed but failed to take into account the legendary size of Idas, and consequently his legendary appetite. They were duped as Idas not only devoured his, but also Lincius's share of the calf. This event obviously caused a shock revelation for the Dioscuri. In a moment, all those times as boys when they wondered why the food disappeared whenever they turned their backs came back to haunt them. It had been Idas all along. Slow to recover from this realisation, Castor and Polyjuices couldn't prevent Idas, the cattle, and a possibly still hungry Lincius from flying back to Messene. This left the Spartans with nothing to do but return home, brood, and plot their revenge. Revenge is one of those funny things in Greek mythology, seemingly the purview of gods alone, as only they seem to get away with it. Whenever a mortal plots revenge, it almost always backfires on them, and as we'll see, it would be no different this time. 
With the poorest of timing, the Tindaridae decided the right time to exact vengeance was just after Paris arrived in Sparta. There is an implication that Idas and Lynceus were there too in the home of their uncle, and this bold appearance could have been the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. Enraged, the Spartan princes made suitable excuses and left with a warband for Messenia. As we know, Menelaus left for Crete, and his grandfather's funeral shortly after Paris arrived too, leaving Helen bereft of protection. Who knows how things might have turned out for her had husband and brothers stayed. Aphrodite's subversive ways may have carried the day for Paris at any rate, we'll never know for sure. What's clear is Menelaus and the Dioscuri's presence would have presented a tough obstacle to Helen's departure with the son of Priam. Unaware of the storm clouds on the horizon, Castor and Polyjuice successfully raided Messenian lands, captured the cattle, along with much treasure. On their return, they set an ambush for Idas and Lynceus on the Taygetus mountain range that separated Messenian and Spartan lands. Thinking the sons of Apharius would leave the house of Tyndareus soon enough for home, and once there, they would see the destruction and theft wrought by the twins and set off in pursuit immediately. They weren't wrong, and what they imagined most assuredly came to pass, but once again the Dioscuri underestimated their rivals. Lynceus was well known amongst his people for having amazing eyesight. It was said that he could even see at night and minerals beneath the ground. Seeing the twins hiding near an oak tree, he informed his brother of the danger, and the sons of Apharius resolved to turn the tables. Charging at Castor and Polyjuices, and catching them unawares, Idas lunged forward with his spear, impaling Castor and wounding him mortally. At the cry from his wounded brother, Polyjuices flew into a rage so fearful Idas and Lynceus turned and fled. His anger made him fast. Catching up to Lynceus, he drove his own spear right through him closing those all-seeing eyes once and for all. Not slowing down, Polyjuices continued after Idas, who tore a rock from the ground and hurled it at his pursuer. Being struck in the head, the remaining Dioscuri collapsed in unconsciousness, and it would seem Idas had escaped. It was not to be, and Zeus chose this moment to involve himself, casting a lightning bolt and burning the final son of Aphrarius to the ground. In the Archaic period, the wars between Sparta and Messenia for domination of their part of the Peloponnese would last initially for around a century, and then flare up in revolts and skirmishes until the Roman era. This early myth of the two royal houses in conflict was often referenced as the beginning of the enmity between the two peoples. The 5th century poet Pindar paints a picture of misery for his audience, as Polyduces recovers and makes his way back to his brother, who is breathing his dying breaths. As Castor passes, his peaceful face is drenched by the hot tears pouring from his twin's eyes. The boxer screams at Zeus to let him die too, rather than live a life without his best friend. Now, appearing before Polyjuices, Pinder has Zeus say the following in his tenth victory ode. You are my son, but your brother afterwards by the seed of mortals begotten in your mother by Tyndareus that was her husband. Nevertheless, I give you two choices. If you wish to be immortal, you can reside in Olympos with the gods. But if you are resolved in your grief, you can share your immortal gift with him. Then half your time will be spent alive beneath the earth, and half your time on Olympos. He chose the latter option and Zeus took him up to Olympus, so both the Tindaridae finished their mortal existence and moved on to their shared immortality. This fate is referenced in the oldest of sources, for in the Iliad Homer says that both the brothers are beneath the ground. This is why Helen can't see them from the walls of Troy amongst the Archaeans. Having already left for Troy before their apotheosis, she would have no idea of their fate. But in the Odyssey, Homer clarifies the story by mentioning the shared immortality. From that moment on, they ceased being princes of the Tendarian house and went on to become objects of worship to the Greco-Roman world. They would still be important to the Spartans and the other Hellenic peoples of the Archaic and Classical periods, 
The peculiar dual kingship model practiced by Sparta in those periods was believed to have been of divine providence from the twins. Moreover, the rule of one king at war and one at home was said to have taken form from the type of immortality shared between Castor and Polyduces, one in Olympos, free to roam the world, and the other within the confines of Sparta. That they were revered and respected across the rest of what would become modern Greece is obvious by the archaeological and historical record left behind. We've already heard of the Anikion, set up in Athens, and in Pausanias' description of Greece he cites no fewer than three different structures outside of Sparta that have prominent representations of the Dias Curae. The Etruscan people of northern Italy revered the brothers from an early time and they are depicted in vaseware from the 6th century BCE here. This probably occurred via transmission from the Greek cities in the southern parts of Italy. From there, it filtered into the burgeoning Roman Republic that already had a penchant for divine twins due to their city's founders. Plutarch describes an event in his life of Coriolanus, occurring at the Battle of Lake Regillus in roughly 495 BCE. The Romans were hard-pressed against an opposing force comprised of soldiers from other Latin cities, led by their former Roman king, Tarquinus Serpervus. It was reported that both Castor and Polyduces fought on the side of Rome and helped secure victory against the Latins. Later that day, Plutarch goes on to say in his life of Emilius Paulus, they appeared in the Forum of Rome upon horses lathered in sweat. They were said to be using the fountain to refresh themselves and gave news to all passers-by of the great victory gained at the lake. The legend goes on to say that the first man they met drew near to the twins and they touched his beard which turned from black in colour to a bronze. This is the foundation myth for the very popular Roman surname Ahanababus, or Bronze Beard. On that very spot was founded a temple to Castor and Polyduces. Miraculously, some three columns of that building still stand in the Forum Romanum today. In the Roman Empire, they were known simply as Gemini. Their importance to Greek and Roman religious practices continued all the way down to the coming of Christianity in the 4th century CE. Apart from Rome and Sparta, there are remains of significant temples to Castor and Polyduces in Sicily, Turkey and Egypt. It wasn't for a pair of Spartan princes that these different centres of worship sprung up across the Mediterranean. Over the years, they had evolved into patron deities of ships, sailors, horses, horsemen and war. Their mortal lives finished, Zeus set them above all men with a place in the cosmos. Populations in the modern era are becoming more and more urbanised as time goes by. For the vast majority of us living in large cities, the stars of the night sky are often a remote thing. Anyone who's ever spent some time in remote areas of the world and looked up at night can appreciate how vastly different the night skies can seem without the ambient lights of civilization. In the Northern Hemisphere, if you look slightly northeast of the easily recognisable Orion Cluster, you will see another constellation. Usually depicted after a little join-the-dots game as two stick figures holding hands, it is one of the zodiac symbols known as Gemini. The Gemini grouping has long been associated with divine twin mythology. Recorded as such by the Babylonians as early as the 16th century BCE, who called the grouping the Great Twins. This, like other astrological stories, no doubt stretches far back into pre-literate civilization's history. To modern astronomy, the two brightest stars in the constellation are known as Castor and Pollux. It should be noted, however, that Castor is in fact made up of three sets of binary stars, though it only appears as one to the naked eye. In many ways, their journey finished where it began. As like most objects of veneration in Greek religion, the gods were more often than not just anthropomorphisms of celestial and natural phenomena. Taken from the stars, as Helen was almost certainly from the moon, the twins rode upon the mythical plane of the heroic age and a legend to reascend the firmament where they still look down on us today. 
For some reason, I'm getting the Lion King theme song, The Circle of Life, in my head, which means it's definitely time to finish. Thank you so much for your time. A little update on the roadmap for future episodes. I've really enjoyed exploring the depths of the mythic age, but from a Spartan point of view, it's probably time to move on to their next phase of history. Before I leave that age, I'd like to take the opportunity to talk a little bit about some of my favourite myths, and then bring the Bronze Age to a close. So, the next episode will be an anthology on some of my favourite legends. I intend to retell, in summarised form, the stories of Perseus, Oedipus, and a more complete telling of the Golden Fleece completing the story of Jason and Medea in the process. The episode after that will be on the collapse of the Bronze Age, but more on that next time. So, pack your travel roll, torch, and supplies as we go questing on June the 7th in episode 9, yes, 9, in the footsteps of heroes. Until then, dear listeners, take good care, and speak soon. Every time I say the name Medea, I think of the Greek dish Medea Sakonaki, which is mussels in a tomato and feta sauce. Why do those words have to be so similar? The show's notes has information about this month's member content. Please check out my website, spartanhistorypodcast.com, where I have extra information, photos, and maps of the areas discussed. You can find me on Twitter, at spartan underscore history, and on Facebook too, at Spartan History Podcast. If you like this episode and are keen to hear more, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you catch your pods from, and leave a review. See you next time.